0: Please turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And as I always say, uh, you'll find my sermons much easier to follow if you actually open your Bible and follow along. In our sermon last week, Jesus had been teaching in the temple. After leaving the temple on their way back to Bethany, Jesus and his disciples would have traveled down a steep path into a valley before heading up the Mount of Olives on the other side. As they left Jerusalem, the disciples commented on how magnificent the temple was, and Jesus undoubtedly shocked them by saying that it would all be destroyed. Imagine how disturbed you might be if someone you recognized as a genuine prophet told you that the U.S. Capitol building would be destroyed. I imagine that was their reaction. The disciples asked when that would happen, and Jesus warned them that before that time, there would be wars and rumors of wars famines pestilences earthquakes and persecution as we saw last week all of this came true then jesus said that after the temple was destroyed jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by gentiles until the times of the gentiles were fulfilled and that also came true jesus has been tra- or jerusalem has been trampled underfoot by gentiles all the way from 70 ad to 1948, first by Romans, then by Muslims, and then by the British. Jesus said that sometime after Jerusalem had been trampled underfoot by Gentiles, he would come again in power and great glory to gather his elect. And after this, we find out from the Gospels of Matthew and John that Jesus went back to Bethany for the night. And that brings us up to this morning. But first, let's pray. Lord, speak to us through your word this morning. Guide our thoughts and give your people great discernment to know whether my interpretation and applications are accurate. And help us grow stronger in our love and commitment to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Luke 22, verses 1 to 6, we learned that sometime during Jesus' last week, Judas made arrangements with the chief priests and officers of the temple guard to betray Jesus when there were no crowds around. The religious leaders had been looking for an opportunity like this because they were afraid that if they arrested Jesus publicly, the crowd may erupt in an all-out riot. The text doesn't tell us why Judas betrayed Jesus. Some have tried to make Judas out to be a misguided good guy by suggesting that Judas was tired of waiting for Jesus to overthrow the Romans, so he was trying to force Jesus' hand to start a revolt. But Judas was not a good guy. In John 17, Jesus himself calls Judas the son of perdition, a phrase implying that Judas was destined for hell. I suspect that Judas' motivation was the love of money. In John 12:6 it says Judas was a thief, and as keeper of the money bag he used to help himself. To what was put into it. Judas sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Now, this is all background or foreshadowing to what will come at the end of the story in verses 47 to 53, but the main story begins in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared for the Passover. Now, this kind of sounds to me like something out of a spy movie. Jesus sends two of his his disciples, Peter and John, not everyone. And he tells them to go to Jerusalem and that someone, a man carrying a jar of water will meet them at the gate. Now, men didn't usually carry the jars of water. It was the women. Follow him, Jesus said, and he will take you to a house. Tell the owner of the house. The teacher wants to show you, show us a guest room where we can eat the Passover. Jesus says the room will be all furnished. Jesus already has it all planned out. But why the secrecy? I suspect it's because if Jesus had told all his disciples where they were having Passover, Judas would have informed the authorities, and Jesus would, or Judas, and that Jesus would have been arrested in the upper room before he even had a chance to spend his last evening with his disciples. And according to verse 10, Jesus had been eagerly desiring to have Passover with them before his suffering. And according to the Gospel of John, he had a lot to teach them. He wasn't about to let Judas or the Romans mess up his last Passover meal with his disciples. Now, the Passover chronology here is a little confusing because we began each new day at midnight, but they began a new day at sundown. So for us, After sundown on Thursday, for example, is still Thursday, right? But for them, after sundown on Thursday would be Friday. And that year, Passover began on Friday. In other words, Passover began on what we would call Thursday evening after sundown. The Passover lambs would have been sacrificed in the mid to late afternoon on Thursday, starting about 3 p.m., In preparation for all the Passover meals that evening. Verse 12 says that the room was already finished, furnished. I'm assuming that means the table was already set and ready to go. So when verse 13 says they prepared for the Passover, I think that means they took a lamb to the temple to have it sacrificed for their evening Passover meal. So while Peter and John were making preparations. Jesus and his other disciples went to the large second-story room where they would eat the Passover meal that evening. During this meal, Jesus took the bread and gave it to his disciples. And in verses 19 and 20, he said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, we've talked about this before during communion services, so I'm not going to repeat it here. Just remember that this wasn't like our church communion ceremonies. This was just part of a meal. And the disciples were carrying on conversations like any group would would at dinner when the topic changed to who would be the greatest. Let's read verses 24 to 27. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who sits at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Now, in my mind, I can imagine Jesus rolling his eyes and groaning and thinking, oh, please, haven't we covered this before? In fact, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus' disciples had this same argument about who would be greatest. And just like some of my students when I was at Crown, they were apparently not paying very good attention. And they were at it again. So Jesus had to remind them that although kings domineered over their people, the disciples were not to be like that. They were not to be domineering. Instead, they should take the role of a servant. And since the disciples didn't seem to get it the first time, my guess is that it was probably about this time that Jesus got down and washed his disciples' feet as a powerful illustration they would never forget, as we find in the Gospel of John. The topic gets ominous again, starting in verse 31. Jesus turns to Peter and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Wait, what? Turn back? What was that supposed to mean? Verse 33, Peter protested, saying, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus predicted that before the rooster crowed again, Peter would deny Jesus three times. Jesus then gave some very puzzling instructions. Verse 35 to 37, Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. You see, in chapter 9, and again in chapter 10, Jesus sent out his disciples on home missions trips. Verse 36 continues, he said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus reminded them that when he sent them out on their whole missions trips, he sent them without supplies, and yet God provided. But now Jesus said the situation will soon change. And their strategy will need to change, too. Jesus says that from now on, they should take a bag with them on their trips. And if they don't have a sword, they should buy one. This is because what was written about him in Isaiah was about to be fulfilled. The Messiah was about to suffer and die, as Isaiah had predicted. He would no longer be with them physically as before. The situation was about to change. Verse 38, the disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. According to the NIV, Jesus responded, that's enough, with an exclamation point, implying that that's enough talk like that. The King James just says, it is enough, which is more neutral and actually more accurate because this phrase could also be translated, it is sufficient or it is adequate. In other words, rather than criticizing the disciples as the NIV implies, Jesus may just be saying that their two swords would be adequate. They didn't need to buy anymore. Now, most scholars interpret Jesus symbolically here. For example, a pastor scholar named Kent Hughes says that the disciples, quote, focused on the specific mention of a sword without attempting to grapple with what that suggested, namely the hostility that that awaited them and the necessity of making adequate provision. The proof that Jesus was not suggesting his disciples arm themselves came later that evening when one of the disciples drew a sword in Gethsemane and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, to which Jesus responded, no more of this, and healed the man. So in other words, according to Hughes and most scholars, buying the swords was symbolic for preparing for hostility but I'm not sure how the disciples could possibly have known that this is purely symbolic. And how are they supposed to prepare for hostility without swords? And if the bags they are now supposed to take with them are literal, why not the swords? And if Jesus' reference to the swords was just symbolic, why did Jesus let disciples carry the swords in the first place? And why did he let them keep the swords? Instead of saying, it is enough, Why didn't he say, get rid of those things? So even though the symbolic view is by far the majority view, personally, I'm not convinced. A minority view is expressed by a conservative Lutheran scholar named Richard Lenski, who died in 1936. Lenski said we should not spiritualize or allegorize what Jesus says about buying a sword. Lenski says Jesus is speaking literally about a real sword or real swords. That will be needed for protection. So, if we follow Lenski's view, I would say that when Jesus says that is enough, he means their two swords are sufficient. They're enough. After all, the disciples are not supposed to be forming a well armed militia and they're not starting a revolution. There may be times when traveling on dangerous roads outside Judea that they need to defend their lives. On this view, when Peter later pulls his sword and cuts off someone's ear, and Jesus says, no more of this, Jesus had warned his disciples over and over again that he was going to die. In fact, he had just made that point with his reference to fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. Yes, there may come times when they would need swords for protection, but this was not that time. This was a time to submit to the Father's will. Then in verses 39 to 44, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not enter into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus and the disciples then went to their usual place on the Mount of Olives. An olive grove called the tree of, or the Garden of Gethsemane. He told his disciples to pray that they would not fall into temptation. Well, he went on ahead to pray. The text says that Jesus was in so much anguish that his sweat was like drops of blood. Verse 42, he prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. So when Jesus comes back to the disciples, he found them sleeping again. It was then that a crowd consisting of temple police came, being led by the chief priests and Judas. Judas greeted Jesus with the traditional kiss on the cheeks, and Jesus rhetorically asked if Judas was betraying him with a kiss. And then in verses 49 and 50, sensing what was about to happen, a couple of the disciples valiantly said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? One of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. Jesus snapped no more of this, and he healed the victim's ear. Verses 50 to 53, Jesus then asked the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out to me with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts. And you didn't lay a hand on me. In other words, contrary to some authors like Reza Aslan, Jesus was not a revolutionary intending to lead a rebellion against Rome. Now, what follows next is Jesus' arrest, and we'll cover that next week. So what do we learn from this passage? Actually, there's a lot of lessons, but I'm just going to focus on two. First is a theological lesson. This passage emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was in such emotional stress that his sweat actually mixed with drops of blood. This is a very rare condition called hematidrosis. An article in the Indian Journal of Dermatology says that hematidrosis is a condition in which the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to exude blood occurring under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. I doubt that you've ever been under such emotional distress. I know I haven't. But Jesus, knowing exactly what was about to happen to him, including his separation from the Father, had sweat mixed with blood. There was an ancient heretical group of people known as docetists who believed that Jesus just appeared to be human, but was not really human at all. Some of their writings portray Jesus on the cross laughing because they didn't think he was really human and felt no pain. But that is not what the Gospels teach. Although Jesus was fully God, he was also fully human. He suffered just like we do, both physically and emotionally. In fact, Jesus prayed that if possible, he would be spared from his fate. It's like he's saying, God, is there any other way we can do this? But then he prays, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, Jesus submits his will to that of the Father, even if that means going to death. Now, second, I'm among a very small minority who take Jesus' words about buying the swords literally. Although today we would probably apply that to buying a gun, not a sword. I think there may be times when self-defense is appropriate. I think protecting innocent victims may almost always be appropriate. For example, when last December an armed gunman walked into a Fort Worth church and started shooting the people, two armed church members shot and killed the gunman. I think their shooting was justified. They were loving their neighbors, their fellow church members, by protecting their lives. But this takes great discernment. In many cases, we are not called to defend ourselves we may be called to turn the other cheek, so to speak. As Jesus said to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. He was willing to submit to the Father, even if that meant death. And we need to have that same attitude. In 1956, the missionaries Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Ed McCauley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Euderian had spent three months making air-to-ground contact with a primitive tribe in Ecuador. I'm sure many of you know the story. They thought they had established a friendly relationship and planned to meet face to face for the first time. They flew in and set up camp. Their first visitors seemed friendly, but were followed later by other tribal members who killed all five of them with spears. The irony is that the missionaries were armed with guns. Not only that, but one of them had been the the World War II equivalent of special forces. They could have easily defended themselves. The tribe didn't stand a chance against their guns. But they willingly chose to die for Jesus. So why were the missionaries killed? One of those who actually helped kill the missionaries later explained that they just didn't trust the white people. They feared the tribe, the tribe feared it was a trap. However, when they found out the missionaries were armed and could have killed them, they realized that the missionaries really were friends who were willing to die for them. In the months to come, other missionaries reached out to the tribe. When the tribe heard the message of how God sent his only son to die on the cross tribe believed the gospel because they had seen that love enacted in the lives of the missionaries who were willing to die rather than defend themselves as a result that tribe and hundreds of people have come to Christ and many college students were motivated to go into foreign missions I think there may be a time for self-defense and there may be a time to die and it takes great discernment to know the difference the question is this: if you were called to die for Jesus, would you be prepared to pray, Lord, not my will, but yours be done? Let's pray. Lord, you came to this world and gave your life for us. Help us to live for you. And if that, if it be your will, help us be willing to die for you too. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.